This is Paul Nobles once again from Eat to Perform. And for this one, Susan and I have agreed that you've probably already heard the intro. Um, but if you haven't, you can find Susan at, at drsusankleiner.com or you can sign up to be a member of Eat to Perform if you think you need help with coaching at www.eatperform.com. Okay. So in the last podcast, we, we talked about coaches blaming clients, right, for the lack of success. And we talked about some of the mechanisms on, on why that is happening and why, you know, the five goldfish crackers that the person ate, you know, on Tuesday, seven weeks ago, really isn't the actual problem. So what is the actual problem? And for almost everyone, the answer is, is in some version of diet adherence, right? And so if you're creating a system, you have to have diet adherence as what I believe to be the most important piece of a successful result for that client, right? So if you can't create parameters that allow success, if all you're saying is we're just going to have clients eat less until they buckle and then hopefully they don't, you know, gain it all back. Well, that's a really bad plan. Right. Um, and if, if, if that sounds ridiculous, there's a lot of plans that actually do work like that. Right. They don't really have any kind of normalization of calories kind of baked into the plan. And even the places that do, we talked about this, in the last podcast, if you're using AI or machine learning to do that. So I don't, you might not know this, Susan, I, I think you do, but um, the way that these apps work is that if you have not lost weight for the week or two week or whatever the check-in variable is, um, they ask you a series of questions and then they either take away food or add food based on the, the situation that you're in. So the level of AI or machine learning is a little bit overrated. Are you losing weight? No, I'm not losing weight. Okay, let me take away calories, right? Um, are you gaining weight? No. Okay, let me add calories. That's how it is. It's simple, right? I mean, like, to be honest with you, you could probably do that on your own relatively easily. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the issue being that you might not do great with kind of what foods to take away. Right. But what you would quickly come up with is that it's usually a lot easier to take away fats because they they carry a bigger load um, than carbohydrates, but you want to have enough balance in a mixed meal that would allow you success in that regard. Okay. That's not the secret of dieting, right? The eat less, eat more, it's kind of how it's all set up, right? And I will tell you that when we first started, I mean, first of all, first of all, what we're doing is nothing like anybody else is doing, okay? I know other programs out there reverse diet people. And you can get a real good reverse dieting coach, right, that'll do close to what we're saying, I think we're actually better than an individual like that, partially because 
we just have an amount of data that just those people do not have. And so some of the adjustments that you would want to make, you know, you really have to have experience to do that, right? And you have to go, okay, I've seen this in this data set of people. So we're going to go a little bit longer on the reverse for this instance, right? And so uh, in terms of diet adherence, you have, to, you have to factor in a number of things. And we've tried a number of these things. One of the things that I wanted to specifically mention was this idea that you could have someone eat lower calories. So as we're talking about lower calories and as we're talking about getting into a deficit, the new way of doing it that is very different from say Noom or Weight Watchers, which is more of a kind of middle of the road type program without a lot of really good, um, I would say new science way of doing things is you tear down and you will, you're gonna tear down up to say four times, right? One of the biggest advantages to having calories normalized, right? Most people are aware of 500 calories a day equals a 3,500 calorie deficit and therefore one pound a week. How's that working for everybody? <laughs> right? <laughs> like the body adjusts to that so fast, right? And, th and that's why programs like ours and a number of other people have started tearing things down. And we've been doing that for years. Um, but one of the things that, that we tried, um, on a significant data set of people, um, for a while there was the idea of running a deficit, you tear the person down, you run that deficit for about six weeks, and then you reset for two weeks. So calories are completely normal for two weeks, and then you run another six-week set, okay? If you're an eating performer, you know this period as adaptation prevention, right? Basically, your body is adapting to stimulus, right? All along the way, we want to get it to, to adapt on the way up. We're normally pretty good at keeping you weight stable in that stage. I will say that what we learned doing it in two weeks was that clients would gain weight and become uncomfortable. And so their diet adherence would go away, right? And so um, we found that if we could extend it to three to four weeks, interestingly enough, it is better the faster you do it, right? This is, this is I mean, we just have so much data on this that it's just, you know, is it clinical, clinically scientific? No, it's not. But if you have a client just go back to normal, they're going to gain anywhere from three to five pounds. And almost certainly they're going to um, pull in the reins before you start the next diet cycle. So what ends up happening in that scenario when you do it that way is you get in kind of rinse and repeat mode. Right. So here's the one thing I definitely know 1000%. And maybe you could make a case for it in a very large outlier. 
But if you do it a third time, almost nothing happens. Because one, the juice isn't really worth the squeeze, right? So if you run another six week cycle, right? So, so you, you've teared down the people to kind of these low levels to where it sucks, right? If you're doing it right, kind of eating less should bother you, right? There's a lot of people that go, well, you know, I feel great when I eat less. That's because your body hasn't adapted to it. Your body's adapted to this really horrible state of being, right? And so you don't want to be comfortable under eating, right? And so some people will say, and you'll see this with eating disorders, right? So if you ever if you know anything about eating disorders, when you go into treatment for eating disorder, they don't, they don't have you diet, right? That wouldn't make sense. They get you to the plate where, place where you become more comfortable with food. I'm not suggesting that if somebody says, well, you know, I actually feel quite comfortable at 1,100 calories that they have an eating disorder. What I am going to say, though, is that you're not really providing your body the raw materials that it requires, right, to thrive, to be better, right? And so when you do that, your body's going to draw from its natural reserves to a point where it can get to an unhealthy level. It might be bad for your thyroid. It might be bad for your hormones. There's just so many things that are factoring in there. So food really matters. And so when I talked about like having a deficit and it's mixed, but it's low and, and you're going to have some carbohydrates in there and you're going to have some fats in there. The reason why calories need to get over 2000, even closer to 2,500 really is the North star that we have for, for most of our clients. And many of them actually go higher than that for women um, is because we've all been conditioned to either pick fats or carbs, right? And the reason why we've been conditioned that way is because you have to pick when you're eating less. But if you're eating more, then your body adjusts to that also. It doesn't just adjust to going down. It actually likes eating food quite a bit, right? Um, and so I think what happens for people is they kind of haven't gotten to the look they want or, or the feel that they want, or maybe, maybe there's a mental component that's making all of this difficult. Some of that can be enhanced moving calories back to normal. Some of it, you know, you might need to talk to a counselor, right? There, there are various reasons why people want to look a certain way or feel a certain way. And I think what's happened is, is that you get a little comfortable with the struggle part, right? And you lose focus on what an abundant life would look like. And so for a lot of you listening to this, you know, you might not be at 1200 calories, but maybe you're at 1400 or 1600 or 1800, or you're a guy eating 1800, you know, good luck to your testosterone on that one. You know, I mean, these things have such high repercussions 
that people are not really aware of. And the people that are talking about all these deficits all the time without talking about diet adherence really doesn't make a lot of sense. So to finish my point being is that this idea that you can do every two weeks, move calories back to normal, gain three to five pounds in that process of, of doing that, lose then eight to nine. So you're plus four and then you go back and do it again. You're just opening yourself up to a level of rebound that is not necessary. Right. And so I'll explain why once Susan kind of has any input on anything I said, and I just want everyone to know it's important for me as I say things to have someone like Susan to be critical of it, right? Because that's what science is. Science isn't just talking about ideas. It's about going, okay, I differ with you on this one idea, right? And so I think that doesn't, that's important for all of us to do. And it, it's gotten to this point because even the super sciencey people right now, you know, they're sounding very guru-ish, Right. If you can't challenge these ideas, like blaming a client for a hole in your programming, you know, well, that's that's awful. Right. But. Yet, because we're dealing with massive amounts of people. It, it's being allowed. Right. And so if you're one of the people that's on a 1200 calorie diet and you're having success, well, you're going to share the idea that five goldfish crackers and now all of a sudden. We're sending out all these bad messages to people, right? That aren't really helping. They're actually causing the problem. So long-winded, but but hopefully this is helpful because there's just a lot of information it, that we know specifically as the people that are, are doing the more model. I think Susan may have actually frozen. And so I'm going to continue until... Um, Susan is unfrozen and then we'll see how things go. Okay. So the other piece that I wanted to walk through, so I went through there's basically six weeks. We also did try four weeks. The problem with four weeks was that with four weeks, looks like Susan might be back. Um, I don't know when you froze Susan. So um, Toward the I, end. I just, yeah, I had just stopped and uh, kind of opened up the floor to see any thoughts that you might've had around anything that I said. So I, I'm, as I said, the blaming of the client is, is such an easy out and makes the counselor a very poor counselor just to begin with, because they're coming to you for help. We, you know, that's the whole point, right? And if you can't help them, then you need to say, I'm sorry, I don't have the tools to help you. But don't blame them when what they came to you for help for isn't, and, and your tools aren't working for them. Now, there are always those random clients that really aren't following the program, that really aren't doing anything that for some reason they think by plugging into your program and not doing anything something magically will happen and so 
I'm not ignoring that there are those cases, but it's up to you as the professional to identify those folks and say, you know, my plan won't work for you or, or this isn't working for either of us. And so, um, but, but the, the issue of getting people, uh, guiding people through a program takes time and education. And I have had over the years, folks with big goals who have to learn that they have to treat their nutrition and their diet with the same serious effort that they do their exercise and training. Um, they don't, they're not brought up, you know, I work in sports and they're not necessarily raised with the idea that there's such a thing as a nutrition coach, that, that they have, that the, there is a plan to follow, there's a strategy along the way, that it adjusts as you go. They are, they're, they're raised in, you know, where, in wherever they are thinking that it's kind of a one-shot deal. You do one thing. It's not like they're exercise training. So, so I, it's my job to educate them um, along the way. And that's what a coach does. You identify the points where you can have impact. My, the big thing I think of the sort of the, the calorie adjustments, we need to understand that when we're dealing with nutrition and diet and food and food data, it is not like looking at a 10 pound weight versus a 15 pound weight versus a 20 pound weight and doing 10 reps or 12 reps or 15 reps and how many times you're gonna, it's not exact like that. There's nothing about the data that we have that is exact unless you are in a clinical research laboratory where everything is being measured that goes in and goes out. Databases are not exact. Um, the food, if you, if you look at, oh, I have a medium apple. How do you know that's the same medium apple that was, in, that was entered into the database and the data on that apple? Maybe that's a medium large apple. Maybe it's actually a large apple and you think it's a medium apple. I mean, every single food has, has margins of error. Every data point has errors. And so even if people are being as exact as they possibly can, there is tremendous variation in the calories that they are coming, that they're coming out with from maybe your database. And so understanding the huge level of variability that we are working with on every single level, your estimation of their calorie needs, your estimation of their calorie output and the energy required to do their exercise and their resting metabolic rate, what they're eating. You know, everything has such an enormous range of variability that putting the onus on the client to be exact is, is flawed, is tremendously flawed. And so we are doing our best to go in the right direction 
rather than in the direction you don't want to go, whether that's up or down in weight, up or down in performance. And I do think that, that there needs to be a very strong emphasis on, on their exercise and the energy expenditure that they get both during exercise as well as their movement throughout the day and not such an overemphasis on the exactness of their diet. Because if you can squeeze out a few, a few more tens or hundreds of calories in, in, in expenditure throughout the day, you can help reduce that variability of the counting of calories. And that's really the key. And it actually helps the client feel better on top of it because they're moving more during the day. And so it's to, that's your role, is to really understand the quality of the data. And if you don't understand the quality of the data, you are, again, putting the onus on your client that is, um, misplaced in in my estimation if you're in the business that we're in what susan is describing is a concept called expected value right and an expected value is kind of a big broad way of looking at data sets of numbers that allow you to predict what's going to happen right this is the fundamental thing that we have right that the precise people at a really low number, right? So I think a lot of people might look at what you were saying and, and listen to the last podcast and go, well, it sounds like what she's saying is that the numbers from various calories can actually add up over time and, and things of that nature. And wouldn't that be similar to the, the five goldfish, you know, metaphor, right? It is similar, but the problem is in the precision of the low part, right? Because if we, if we know what we know and we do, that the body is going to adjust, even if you have it wrong a little bit, like Susan's saying, you can make up the difference with a, being more conscious of walking or, or being, you know, a little bit more diligent about actually getting into the gym or, or finding things that, that you love, you know, that inspire you to stay active, right? I think too many people are spending too much time doing things that they really don't like, right? Now, in this discussion of diet adherence, and I'll finish my, my thought process and expect the value. Um, but we'll, I want to get back to the diet adherence and kind of finish that off before we get to the next podcast. And, and so if we're talking about expected value, right? And our range is between 1,200 to 1,400 calories. Yes, right? Now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of little factors that can happen to make that unsuccessful, not to mention the fact that your body is actually adjusted to those calories. So there's so many things. 
and and Susan has a has a great way of saying it. Unfortunately, we don't really have enough time to get into it. Maybe we can get into it. We'll try to get into it in the third con concept. But but it's it's this idea of of what we thought it would take to get to Mars and what it actually took. Right. So remind me of that for the next podcast. So when you have a broader set of numbers, meaning meaning you have a much bigger spread, instead of 1400 calories, you have 2700 calories. Now, not only are we more favorable as it relates to building lean mass, more favorable as it relates to hormonal health, more favorable as it relates to the stress on your thyroid. It's also better. It's the way that you're supposed to exist, right? But we're, you know, I've said it before, we're like the only species of animal that's scared of its own food source, right? And part of it is because we have so much access to hyperpalatable food. I get that, right? Um, but there's so much that we could be talking to people about, about parameters that they could put in place that would help with that. So one of the things that I wanted to really talk about, and, and we talked about this a little bit in, in the last podcast where, you know, we were talking about a study from 1998. We didn't really talk about this part. A lot of the conditions have changed a lot since 1998. Now, the conditions of clinical studies have changed a lot too, but food scales were not wildly available, right? At, the, at this point, you can go to Amazon right now for $9.95, you can buy a pretty good food scale. Yeah, I had a little spring scale in my kitchen, right? It was yeah. certainly not very accurate. <laughs> yeah, and, and then um, food databases, the way they exist right now. You know, I know when I first started with Eat to Perform, we were looking at the USDA database and it had 17,000 foods in it. Now it has you know, 2 million foods in it, right? Because, you know, various administrations have made that a priority that that got better. Um, so I, I have a little bit of a problem with, you know, we can't nitpick the data so much that we say it has of no value because that's what your typical guru does, right? Your typical guru is gonna be saying, well, there's reasons why calories don't matter. And there's reasons why all this other stuff. And we know that those things do matter a great deal, but it's just the, the components are really difficult to measure at times, right? But in terms of adherence, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about, well, 80% adherence is, is better than you know, hundred percent and then you quit. And I kind of agree with that, but I would ask why the program's set up to where a hundred percent would cause that person to fail. Because what we do with Eat to Perform <laughs> is we have the clients plan their food the day before, right? Now, do they always do it that way? No, right? I do, I, I do to this day, it, 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 you know, there's this concept, you know, I think the guy's named Jocko Willemick, but 
the idea is, in, I think his book is called this, is that discipline equals freedom. People have this thought process that being more prepared is more rigid. But I would argue that being more prepared actually allows much more freedom in your life. You know, if you have food cooked, you're not going to spend 25 minutes in the drive-thru at McDonald's, right? And so that frees up a lot of time in your day to do all the other things that you would like to do, right? Well, I just have to interrupt you and say, um, why do we plan anything? I mean, what's the point of planning anything right. if, that's, if, if that's being rigid and it doesn't give you freedom? Why do you have a, 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 an academic plan? Why do you have a financial plan? Why do you right. have a career plan? If, if they don't do anything for you, if it makes life too rigid, then why do we talk about those things? Um, you know, so having a nutrition plan, having a food plan, just like we have a financial plan or just like we have a career plan is critically important to number one, accomplishing the goals that you have, but also giving you the freedom to live the rest of your life because you've got a plan. Yeah, it's the difference between being proactive and reactive, right? The more proactive your life is, the more likely the path to success opens up. The more reactive your life is, well, you're kind of winging it. Right. Maybe you get there, right? What's the old Bugs Bunny thing? Oh, took a wrong term, long left turn in Albuquerque, right? right? right. There's a lot of people that keep taking left turns in Albuquerque, and then they see a meme on, on Instagram that says, ah, 80% is fine. I mean, 80% is fine if you're trying to keep people buying your $9.95 a month app, right? But if you're actually trying to get them to, to success, focusing on your system and why the diet adherence part is super important actually becomes a, a much bigger deal, right? Well, and so we'll end It's the attitude of good enough, right? Yeah. It's not seeking excellence. It's not being goal oriented. It's that, you know, I never meet my goals. This is good enough. And, yeah. and, and so you're admitting that, that your plan actually isn't good enough for people to get to their goals. And so, you know, I, in, in my world, <laughs> I'd be out of business if 80% yeah. was good enough, right? I mean, it, there is no good enough. It's either right on or you're out of the game. And, um, and while everyone is not trying to be an Olympic athlete, I agree with you. Don't we all want to try and be the best that we can be? If someone's got motivation, then give them the support to get to their goal. Don't knock that motivation down by taking away the potential of them achieving their goals. And, and, and it, it's a backward program to, as you said, to say that 80% is good enough. Now, it doesn't mean that every day has to be 100%. That's right. a different strategy. Yeah. And, and I think that um, that's what you, that's what you, a do. good, a good, a good judge. I, I, 
I wanted to end, but actually I have a really good thing to say, but the, a good judge by any of this is most of the time, right? I think if you feel paralyzed by 100%, don't be. Just think of it as most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you'll have a lot more success um, if you can do it that way. But like I said, you know, planning your food the day before um, is really super important. So there was, uh, we were, like like Susan's saying, there's there's high stakes in all of this. Like when you're working with the, you know, football teams or basketball teams like she does, right? This is a real high level. It's interesting that you said that because I talked to someone who was a, a bear, uh, wide receiver for the Chicago Bears relatively recently. And he was like, yeah, they don't even have a nutritionist on staff, you know, um, which most people would not think that that's the case, right? Now, yeah, so this is, this is, yeah, I think that, um, I think a lot of the teams have embraced this idea within the last five to 10 years, right? Um, But it changes the administration to administration, right? right? Sometimes it's a moment to moment. Julie Burns, who's a registered dietitian in Chicago, had been the nutritionist for the bears for a very long time. So it must be a recent change. But I I do want like one, I know we want to um, close out here, but one thing I learned many years ago, this was when I was working on my doctorate, that perfection is unattainable, but excellence is a worthwhile goal. And I learned that, like I said, during my doctoral training, and I have embraced that ever since. Forget perfection, (laughs) like forget perfection. It doesn't exist, but excellence, striving for excellence, not maybe in everything you do, in certain things, certain things are just good enough because you can't do everything to a level of excellence. Some things are good enough, but certain things, excellence is by far a worthwhile goal. And if you have big goals, then you have to strive for excellence or you just will never get there. Don't let someone knock down your desire to achieve a goal by telling you that 80% is good enough. Well, let's end on that note. And then I have, I have something that I wanted to mention, but I can do that as the open for the next podcast. So I appreciate everybody being here. And like I said, you can listen to these all at once, or you can listen to them whenever it works for you. Talk to you later.